This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. PLI's SEC Institute provides up-to-date SEC reporting, compliance, and accounting education through innovative workshops and programs. In March, we sat down with the SEC Institute's director, George Wilson, to learn about the SECI. George is with us again to highlight important developments from the SEC, FASB, and PCAOB that are covered in the SEC Institute's quarterly newsletter for September 2020. We'll discuss those topics and more today on Insecurities. Hello, and welcome to the Insecurities Podcast, helping you stay current on the latest securities, regulatory, and enforcement developments with a practitioner's perspective on the stories you should be following. As always, I'm Chris Ekimoff, and I'm here with my co-host, Kurt Wolf. Always good to be with you, Chris. As Kurt said, we have one of our favorite people back on the podcast today and our first repeat guest, uh, potentially a repeat offender here, uh, George Wilson from PLI's SEC Institute. Yeah, a quick refresher in case you missed our conversation with George in March. George is a director at PLI's SEC Institute, where he teaches workshops dealing with a variety of SEC and FASB-related topics. George also plays a key role in developing SECI programming and helps pen their quarterly newsletter, which we're focusing on today. George, we're so glad you were willing to join us again. Welcome back to Insecurities. Oh, Chris, Kurt, thank you both for the opportunity to be here again. It is always a delight, and we always learn well together, so thanks for that opportunity. As you can imagine from its title, the SEC Quarterly Newsletter highlights the updates from the SEC, FASB, PCAOB, and other relevant sources for the most recent quarter. As the pandemic rolls on into the fall, the newsletter for this quarter talks about COVID's continued disruption, the importance of continued high-quality disclosure and financial statements, the SEC's whistleblower program, and some updates to rules regarding proxy voting. George, we want to start our conversation today by following up on several topics we discussed in March that have continued to create accounting and related challenges for regulated companies. And we have to start, of course, Chris sort of tipped us off uh, with the biggest story of the year, the COVID-19 pandemic. You know, it's funny, but if you think back to March, we had a, a relatively short conversation about the coronavirus or COVID-19. And, and in fact, we felt like we had to give a little bit of background on the virus itself, which uh, which would seem ridiculous now because it's it's something we all talk about and deal with in our everyday lives. You know, it's because when we talked, it was really just taking root in the U.S. And I don't think any of us would have guessed at the time how disruptive it would prove to be and and how long it would continue to endure as something that is impacting us personally and professionally every single day. You know, we focused a, a lot at the time on disclosures that we thought people or companies might have to to make going forward, but we didn't get a whole lot deeper than that because we weren't quite sure what to expect. Obviously, things have continued to play out in the months since March, and we wanted to circle back with it today, George, really to touch on two points. The first is SEC regulatory relief relating to the pandemic, and, and the second is the importance of disclosures. So let's, let's start with SEC regulatory relief. 
you know, as circumstances surrounding the pandemic continue, the SEC has announced different relief from time to time. They've kept some in place and, and removed others. There have been new rules or relief related to things like manual signature requirements. But things seem to keep changing at the SEC, uh, including the deadlines for when they're, they're expecting companies to get back to normal. So, George, can you just outline for us some of the key updates or guidance that we've seen from the SEC relating to COVID-19? This is exactly the right place to start. And as you said, when we did this the first time, we were at the beginning of a huge period of uncertainty. And so the staff at the SEC and the commission themselves have have addressed COVID-19 with two prongs of guidance, I would call them. One is tactical relief, just as you suggested. And the other is guidance about disclosures, which we can pick up as a second piece. With the disruption, originally the SEC granted a significant amount of deadline relief. You could actually have an extra 45 days and you could tack a real 12B25 grace period on top of that. That deadline relief was actually terminated on June 30th. So it's really not an issue anymore. The other place where they made a really great tactical decision was about manual signatures. One of the things that's always startling to me is that every time we do a workshop, people are surprised that the SEC literally requires manual signatures, a piece of paper, and Regulation ST requires that you retain those manual signatures for at least five years. The last time we taught a workshop, we actually had a question from someone who said, can I use an electronic signature? And the answer is no, you can't do that. I would ask you guys, I mean, you, you guys have been in this space for a while. Do you think it's kind of antiquated that the SEC will not accept an electronic signature? Yeah, I think it's an outlier, uh, certainly, and and increasingly so, as I think multiple different types of businesses and different regulators have moved away from that kind of wet ink signature. You know, time will tell if they become a little bit more flexible on this, but it it does feel a little bit antiquated to me. I mean, I know even <laughs> even uh, some of the oldest law firm partners you can imagine have have slowly given way to the concept of an e-signature on on letters and filings. So, I would imagine at some point it'll change. Yeah, Kurt, I agree, and I think one of the things we're seeing in the accounting firm world is you know, logistically, it's been difficult because we need to actually physically get people into offices uh, in cities where, you know, things have been shut down. So I know some of the firms that I know of here in D.C. are working to rotate people that, you know, are filing tax returns on July 15th. You know, some of the, the mm-hmm. more complex returns and issues, you know, need to have that wet ink signature. So we've got a, a nice chart set up, at least at our firm, to make sure that people aren't overlapping inappropriately at the office. But as we're all, you know, zooming into each other and, and chatting remotely, it's one of those kind of, uh, you know, face palm moments uh, where you say, why, why do we still need to write this down when we can do everything else remotely? Right. Well, and, and that's exactly what I wanted to bring out. Manually signed accountants reports. I mean, holy cow, that's a, that's a challenge when you don't want to be in the same room with people because of social distancing. Well, the SEC did grant relief. It's not just 
unconditional. There are certain things you need to do. You need to have evidence that there is a manually signed piece of paper, and you need to make arrangements to get that as quickly as possible. That relief was continued. That was a good thing to do. There are a bunch of other places. They've allowed Form 144 filings to be done, and essentially, rather than in paper, submitted electronically via email and things like that. There are a number of other places where there are fairly detailed tactical issues. Some of those go back to capital raising and smaller offerings and the crowdfunding kind of space. We put together a blog post that was on July, mid-July, that summarizes all of those different relief pieces and actually has a link to each of them on the SEC's webpage. You can also find almost all of those on the Corp Fin section of the SEC's webpage. That brings you kind of to the second tine in the fork, which is the guidance that they've put together about disclosures. And that probably kind of leads us a little bit to the next uh, general topic, disclosures overall. Yeah, George, and and I remember back to my first uh, you know accounting one hundred and one class in college, and you know the teacher puts up the financial statements and and says, okay, what do you guys think of the the balance sheet? What do you think of the the income statement? And you know we're all trying to be impressive and, and talk about revenue and, and total assets, but uh, the devil's really in the details. And in the end of that class was you guys should have read the footnotes before you started uh, coming up with with ideas about how the company's doing. So disclosure is forever and and will continue to be the context and and an avenue for clarity in which you know companies can communicate with their investors about uh, what's really going on. So as we see you know disclosure arguments and and issues arise year over year on on new items and, and ideas. You know, COVID-19, the pandemic and, and responses are right there with it. But in the time since, we've seen a couple of, of announcements come out from, from regulators regarding those disclosures. On April 3rd, the Office of the Chief Accountant issued a statement regarding the importance of high quality financial reporting in the light of significant impacts of COVID-19. I know this issue of the SEC quarterly newsletter references a public statement issued on June 23rd by Sagar Teotia, the chief accountant himself, reiterating that fact. George, What did you glean from his comments on high-quality financial reporting? I think he made a number of points. And and that document you mentioned, his his statement, is one of the most recent pieces of guidance that's come out from the SEC about disclosures in this incredibly uncertain and disrupted environment. So when he talked about high-quality financial reporting in the light of COVID-19, Mr. Teotia focused a little bit on what OCA is doing to promote high-quality financial reporting. So they've been engaged with the FASB. They've been engaged with the PCAOB. And boy, I just have to say right here, guys, the episode that you did about the PCAOB was wonderful. It gave you a great perspective of the mission of the organization and how the current board and the staff are working to accomplish that mission. Um, And so working with the PCAOB is part of what OCA does, and they've been focused on well, Jeepers, how do you do audits when you can't go on site? How do you do an inventory observation virtually? Uh, do you need to be there? How, what, what safeguards should you put in place? That kind of stuff. Engagement with standard setters. That was an important part of what he talked about. Part of that also was an encouragement to all companies 
when you're confronted with something that's outside the normal course, don't be reluctant to consult with OCA. And, you know, this is another ongoing part of being a public company that you have to grapple with. You don't need to be afraid of talking to the SEC. Frequent consultation to avoid problems that might come up later in the comment process is a smart thing to do. So he encouraged consultations. And then he talked about some specific issues. He Significant estimates and judgments, being reasonable when you're confronted with a tough estimate and how many of us have had to make tough estimates for things as as normally not a big deal as impairment of long-lived assets. Um, If you've implemented the current expected credit loss standard, since we have to take into account history, current conditions, and reasonable and supportable forecasts, who knows what the future impact of, of the pandemic will be. With those kind of estimates, be very thoughtful about those. He also emphasized the importance of disclosure controls and procedures, as well as ICFR. As we go through the process of making decisions about disclosures, remember ICFR is all about the financial statements, but DCP, disclosure controls and procedures, are all the things we do to make sure all the information in the whole report, which includes all the stuff outside the financial statements, particularly MD that all that information is appropriate. That's really tough when you're dealing with these kinds of uncertainties. And in fact, in many remarks, the staff has emphasized that robust forward-looking disclosures won't just benefit investors, but also when we're focused on future conditions that are highly uncertain as management, and it's reasonably likely that that could have a material impact. And remember, reasonably likely is is really some percentage less than 50-50. That needs to be disclosed. And that's the kind of stuff we need to be thinking about. The newsletter also touches on the disclosure guidance recently from Corp Finn, labeled as topic number 9A, which, and I quote, provides additional views of the Division of Corporation Finance regarding operations, liquidity, and capital resources disclosures companies should consider with respect to business and market disruptions related to COVID-19, end quote. So, you know, basically preaching to the choir there, George, all the big items that that (laughs) COVID-19 is coming after. But, uh, you know, what else do you see in topic 9A that might, uh, you know, help flush out some of the statements made by Mr. Teotia? You need to ask the question, what information would be necessary material to an investor? What's important through my eyes as management? But topic 9A provides some thoughts, and I would call it a reminder list of disclosures that are going to be appropriate, primarily about liquidity and capital resources in MD&A. There are a lot of things to think about here, but Remember, the ultimate goal here is to say, here's my liquidity position today. Here's what I think I'm going to need. Here's what I think is going to come in. If I have a shortfall, here's what I expect to do about the shortfall. And it really took that overall broad principle of MDNA, liquidity and capital resources disclosure, and put some very specific COVID-19 related thought processes 
into that overall consideration for what needs to be disclosed, what's going to be material to an investor. And I would just, again, toss in the idea that those are things that your disclosure committee should be involved in. You know, supply chain disruption, distribution channel disruptions, those aren't things that accountants sitting at their desks or in their homes in front of their computers usually think about. It needs to be multidisciplinary. And particularly in this virtual world, I think a meaningful disclosure committee meeting is a lot harder to bring off. And so I think the reminders that are in Topic 9A are really helpful. Thank you for the rundown. You know, while we've got you, I think there's one more thing before we move to some new items. Uh, One more thing that we want to pick up on from our last conversation in March, and that has to do with uh, proxy rules for proxy voting advice. Um, just, Just to reorient everyone who's listening or anyone who didn't catch our March discussion, on November 5th, the SEC voted to propose amendments to its rules governing proxy solicitations to enhance the quality of the disclosure about material conflicts of interest that proxy voting advice businesses provide their clients. The proposed rule amendments got something of mixed reviews, I would say, and there have been a ton of comments lobbed over to the SEC in the months since November. On July 22nd, the SEC adopted a final rule that adds conditions to the proxy rules, providing exemptions from the information and filing requirements that proxy voting advice companies typically use. The final rule is designed to provide more quote, transparent, accurate, and complete, end quote, information to shareholders as they decide how to vote. George, this has been a much talked about development. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what the final rule looks like and what do you think will be the practical impact of the rulemaking? That is a great question, a really great question. And there's a lot going on here. I think Many participants in the proxy process have felt like this is a little out of balance when you look at the, the, the sort of relationship between companies who are soliciting proxies and proxy advisory firms. So I loved the way, as you quoted from the rule, the idea here is to provide more transparent, accurate, and complete information. So the rule starts really with the idea that when someone provides proxy voting advice to others, there should be a way that the company whose subject, the subject matter of that voting advice, can review it. And so the rule starts out with a pretty clear provision that the information that's going to be provided has to be made available to the company in a timely manner. And the other provision that's built into the rule is that the people who are using the information provided by the proxy firm, the proxy advice firm, are made aware of any situations where there's a written response by management of the company to that proxy voting advice. You know, there's a lot of history in this rule. I I think sometimes, and historically it's been, I think, a problem for a lot of companies, that they don't really understand the process that proxy advisory firms use to develop their recommendations. And sometimes they want to challenge those processes but couldn't. There was an opaqueness to that process. Also, 
there was no real way for a company to kind of get their view out or to have a different point of view. The rule also requires disclosure of potential conflicts of interest. So I, I think what you've got is kind of a balance of power situation where company management has a certain amount of power in the proxy process and proxy advisory firms have a certain amount of power in the proxy information process. And there was a perception by some people that that might be out of balance a little bit towards the proxy advisory firms. Yeah, I think that's right. And for something that is a little bit mundane sounding, right, sort of what is the the plumbing of the proxy voting process, it did get an awful lot of attention uh, and turned out to be a, a pretty contentious rulemaking. You know, on the one hand, if you tell a story that says uh, we are going to have more transparent, accurate, and complete disclosures to shareholders, that's a good story that resonates with the SEC's continuing focus on uh, protecting and informing Main Street investors. But this was not a unanimous vote by the commission. And, you know, I think that there is a, a fear by some that rules like this could actually have the impact of of suppressing the exercise of shareholder rights in some ways. So, I mean, George, what can you tell us about the, the sort of fault lines when it comes to the rulemaking? <laughs> well, I think the fault lines, as they are so often in the district, are political Republicans on one side, Democrats on another. But I, I think beyond the sort of simple politics, there's a very complex issue underneath this. And the, the complex issue is how loud should the views of issuers be in developing proxy voting recommendations? Essentially, what these rules do is increase the presence of management's views in proxy voting recommendations. And, and I think some people believe, with, without choosing up sides, some people believe that issuers have been sort of closed out of the process of expressing their views when the information is submitted to the people who use proxy advisory firms. And you can debate back and forth whether the fund managers and other people who use these recommendations <clears throat> just kind of follow them by rote uh, for all kinds of different reasons. But letting management have a bigger stake in that information or a bigger impact on the information so that their contested views can be out there, I think is important to think about. On the other hand, the idea of have there been any problems in this arena? Nobody's been able to point at any situation where the information was factually an error. There hasn't been any litigation. There hasn't been any SEC enforcement about this. Mm -hmm. So making proxy advisory firms be a little more careful about the process they use so that it does not become a solicitation hopefully makes the process less opaque and gives us more information. The framework has changed a bit, at least for now, but as with some other recent SEC rulemakings, I suspect this particular version may not be the final version. And so uh, while, while we may be playing with a certain set of rules for the foreseeable future, it's definitely a space to keep watching. 
All right, getting back to my drumbeat of disclosures uh, today <laughs> and on many episodes, and, and Kurt, maybe this will be my version of, uh, of Rigby Eye going your forward. Rigby Eye, yeah. yeah trying, trying to bring up disclosures at every turn. Uh, we saw in the past quarter the SEC adopt a final rule regarding acquisitions and disposition disclosures under Reg SX. Generally speaking, these disclosures relate to mergers and acquisitions or M&A activity, as well as the sale of large product lines or departments from a business itself, hence acquisitions and dispositions. It's been almost 30 years since a final rule has been adopted regarding the presentation of these issues in the financial statements and any related pro forma information. George, talk to us about the update adopted in May by the SEC. Chris, this was such a needed fix. The old rules would give you really strange results when you were determining whether you needed financial statements of an acquired business. This was one of the frequent areas of Rule 313 waiver requests because those rules were, as you just said, 30 years old. So the way the SEC approached this is they kept the framework. When you when you ask, do I need financial statements of an acquired business, we use a tool called the Significant Subsidiary Test. It's in Regulation SX, <clears throat> and it has three prongs, an investment test, an asset test, and an income test. They kept to the three prongs, but they made some really, I think, appropriate t- tweaks to each of those three prongs. The first prong is called the investment test. And the way it used to work is you would take the price you're paying for an acquired business and compare that to your total assets. And if that's over 20%, you met the test at a level that would require financial statements of the acquired business. What was weird about that test is you were taking the market value of what you had purchased for an acquisition and comparing that to your historical cost assets, kind of an apples and oranges thing. So they tweaked that test so that now you take the price you've paid and you compare that to your worldwide market value. Now, worldwide market value is going to be your total public float, different than the stock held by non-affiliates that we disclose on the cover page of the 10K and 10Q. It's your, your worldwide market value is total float, including insiders, everybody. So now we've got a better kind of apples to apples comparison. The second test, the asset test, is just the asset you bought compared to your assets. They didn't tweak that one. But in the third test, which is really the most problematic, you start with an income comparison. You take your income from continuing ops. So you take that number for the acquired company and compare that to your number. And if that's over 20%, you've met the test. Now, if you've had a big year, a couple of big years, one of you is unusually profitable, you can get some weird results from that. So what they did was they added a revenue test. Take revenues of the acquired company and compare that to your revenues. And the thing about the last test is you're going to now compare the operating income pre-tax and the revenues. You use the lower of those two numbers. And revenues are going to be a lot more consistent in terms of not having a lot of variability the way net income might. I think these are all really positive changes. And there, you, you still need to remember there's kind of an override. If there's material information that's not required by the rules, you still have to include that. So if there is something that's not specifically addressed here, but it's material to an investor's decision, you'll still need to include that. So that principles-based materiality override is a 
good thing to put on top of this new provision because now you're not going to have a lot of people, I think, generating information that really isn't material to investors. Yeah, I just imagine the past 30 years, and George, you referenced a lot of the, the nooks and crannies. You know, everything had an exception or there was always oh an interesting gosh. calculation about it. You know, I, I kind of picture that that scene on the highway of the the steamroller coming over all the gravel and flattening it out. So for better or for worse, I think you hit it on the head where we've got that apples, oranges, bananas, uh, pineapples all being compared. We're, we're now at least in the same, still in the same food group, but maybe with a more more comparable fruit. So uh, that's good to see that, that that issue is common, like you said, well overdue at 30 years on. But uh, one of the issues that was actually updated here, uh, you know, caught my eye and probably catches most people's eyes that spend their days like me as a professional skeptic uh, relating to management adjustments regarding potential synergies or dis synergies in the pro forma presentation of acquisition or disposition activity. And to read directly here, George, because I think accuracy is important. Quote, the final amendments will, among other things, amend the pro forma financial information requirements to improve the content and relevance of such information. More specifically, the revised pro forma adjustment criteria will provide for optional management's adjustments depicting synergies and dissynergies of the acquisitions and dispositions for which pro forma effect is being given if, in management's opinion, such adjustments would enhance an understanding of the pro forma effects of the transaction and certain conditions related to the basis and the form of the presentation met. George, two items that catch my eye there, the words optional and the continuing response to management being the decision maker. Uh, those are always issues that we see on the accounting and financial reporting side that, that catch our eye. So how do you see that optional disclosure playing out in, in future reporting periods for acquisition and disposition pro formas? This, Chris, is one of the things I'm really excited to see how companies use. I think there's a great opportunity here when there are clear steps management intends to take. I think in the early days here, responsible managements are going to be very reluctant to do this. They've never been able to do it before in the filed pro forma information. And I think it'll be interesting because... Uh, Conservative management probably will be reluctant to include management adjustments, but more aggressive management probably will. And particularly if you're trying to gain shareholder approval and the pro forma information is part of a proxy solicitation, that, that's going to be interesting to watch. I think there is definitely risk here. And, you know, in the acquisition space, the number of deals that don't work and the number of deals where projected cost savings don't happen or happen much more slowly than management expected them to happen will also have an impact here. I, I think this is going to be an area where some of the more aggressive users of this information end up getting tagged and getting in mm -hmm. trouble and potentially becoming clients for you guys. Yeah. So maybe <laughs> we never we never hope that George, but uh, I think you're leaning exactly where I was going with that, and yeah. you know making a record at the time of the the acquisition or the first reporting period of of how you think it's going to go is is a blueprint right for for future periods and is already the the subject of shareholder litigation and, and other issues around financial reporting before this update. Yeah, and and how many deals never worked the way management thought they would work? Probably, probably 100%. I'll go out on yep. a limb and say. I don't know, Kurt, if yeah. you've seen a different number. but <laughs> No, I, I, I think my number is actually a little higher. Uh, <laughs> it is, you know, deals never work out the way you thought they would. Some work really nicely over time, but it's always fascinating to watch. It and this will be an interesting area. Nice time to be a teacher rather than a preparer. I would add that as a final thought. 
let's pivot away from disclosures here, Chris. Sorry to uh, to pull you away it's from all right. your, your topic du jour. <laughs> Another headline in the SECI's quarterly newsletter that that caught my attention because it's a topic that uh, that interests me greatly and uh, is actually the topic of a previous episode of the Insecurities Podcast is the SEC's whistleblower program. And, you know, George, in the newsletter, I think I think you correctly pointed out that the SEC's whistleblower program is going strong, despite many areas where we may have seen some kind of uh, contraction as a result of, of the pandemic. The SEC whistleblower program seems to be picking up steam. In the last several weeks, they have paid out several whistleblower awards of, of more than a million dollars. There was one in July for $3.8 million. Actually, the, the week that we're recording this, the SEC has announced uh, the approval of two awards, both of which were over a million dollars. And interestingly, we're starting to see awards, You know, despite the fact that this program is, is eight years old, we're still seeing awards that are breaking new ground. Uh, so for example, this week, something that caught my eye was a whistleblower award uh, based on a tip that caused the SEC to commence an examination and that examination led to an enforcement action. Uh, there was another one this week where there were joint whistleblowers who spent time conducting or, or completing an independent analysis of publicly available data and other information. And in so doing, they spotted what they thought was some was some kind of misconduct that they reported to the SEC. I think that case you just mentioned, I mean, that was a $2.5 million mm-hmm. award, I think. Yes. The staff called it in their press release a highly probative independent analysis. I mean, these people probably didn't even, I mean, we don't know because they get to be anonymous. That's one of the great features about the program. But I, I don't think these people even worked with the companies. They, they analyzed public filings and went deep into the quantitative analysis. And this resulted in a huge enforcement case. I mean, that's really fascinating. It is absolutely fascinating. And, you know, I think it's consistent with the broader point here, which is that, you know, the the whistleblower program is really doing remarkably well. You know, at, at the top level, They've awarded over $510 million now as of this week to 92 yeah. individuals since 2012. Again, that includes 25 people in this fiscal year. So since last October 1, 25 awards totaling $123 million. So that's quick math here. I'll let the accountants check me, but that's like $10 million in whistleblower awards per month. Also, enforcement actions that result from whistleblower tips have caused the SEC to seek or obtain orders for $2.5 billion in financial remedies. So, I mean, things are going really well. And from what I hear, the velocity is increasing. They are receiving more tips than ever before, You know, whether that might include tips relating to PPP fraud or other kinds of issuer fraud. I'm sure that we're seeing more and more tips relating to ICOs and digital assets and things like that. But George, tell us a little bit about what, what you've been focusing on in terms of the whistleblower program? The points you've made are the points that I focus on. I also think that these actions really help Main Street investors. There's clearly enough stuff happening out in the world. There are plenty of bad actors who are doing things that aren't appropriate. And inside a company, it is really challenging to be the person who tries to stop it. 
So I think being able to anonymously blow the whistle and the, the episode that you guys did about the whistleblowing process was great because I think it really helped lay a good foundation for why this is necessary and how it works, more importantly. Being able to do that gives you a safety net. And, and I think part of that safety net needs to be there just for your own career. And at the heart of this, I think, is corporate culture. You can't really tell a lot about a culture until you've been in an organization for a while. But every one of these cases, and some of the big ones that have come out recently, I think about the Hertz case, Mm -hmm. really damaged or poisoned corporate cultures from senior management. Um, One that came out a couple of years ago that we talk about in the MDNA context is SeaWorld where at the time the companies knew they had a problem, the CEO, now the former CEO, was actually selling stock. In a culture like that, if you're not at that top level, the whistleblower process, I think, is a hugely important safety net. So I think of it as a safety net for the people who do what we do. And I also think this serves Main Street investors. And it sends a message to people who want to bend the rules. I mean, I really believe most people try to do the right thing all the time, but there are some people who don't, and we need a way to address that. I think that's right. And and the program is certainly a way of addressing it or giving people an avenue to call out misconduct when they see it. You know, those folks are, are tremendously brave when, when they actually come forward with the information, but it's it's nice to have a program to incentivize them. Hey, Kirk, do you think seeing all these whistleblower awards provides a deterrent for people who might want to bend the rules? You know, I don't know actually what what the deterrent effect might be. You don't always know what was the enforcement action that was based on a whistleblower tip. So we can't always say, are these big Fortune 500, Fortune 100 companies, or are these, you know, smaller shops where you might expect there to be some looser practices that would give rise to a whistleblower tip. But, you know, I think what it has done is incentivize larger companies to try to get folks to come to them first, you know, to report internally. You know, if we think back to when the rules were proposed, that was a big talking point. Why didn't the SEC require whistleblowers to report potential misconduct internally first? Why isn't that a condition for receiving an award? And the SEC said, look, people come to us from different circumstances and we want to leave the door open so that folks can go internally or straight to us. If they go internally first, that will be a factor that would weigh toward a larger award. I mean, on balance, that I think that probably makes a, a lot of sense. But I do think what it's done is caused companies uh, you know, with robust internal reporting and compliance programs to think about how can we get folks to come to us first. And I think it's worked wonderfully well. With that being said, if there is then some universe of companies that don't have you know that kind of compliance mindset or program, I don't know how much this really deters them. I, I don't know if the, you know, the, the threat of a whistleblower is really going to cause someone who's knowingly violating the securities laws to say, mm-hmm, maybe I shouldn't do this. I don't want to roll the dice. I don't know. Kurt, I agree. And I think, you know, especially in my line of work, firms like ours and, and accountants like me get hired to do these kind of things all the time. And, you know, being in the in the industry for about 15 years now, saw a bit of what it was like before Dodd-Frank. And then after kind of the, the whistleblower revolution has happened over the past 10 or so years, the posture has changed exactly what you're talking about. Every company that gets an internal report that even smells of a potential issue wants to bring the full force of their internal teams as well as external consultants to come in and and help them either understand what the the issue is or 
prove beyond, you know, maybe not beyond a reasonable doubt, but prove to a significant degree that they've investigated and found no substantiation. So down the road, if and when that whistleblower or, or that report is made public or brought to another forum like the SEC's uh, Office of the Whistleblower, you'll see that, you know, exactly what you talked about, those mitigating factors of, hey, guys, we, we looked at this and we didn't see anything. So the fact that you're bringing this up from an external source, you know, they know their cards a little better than they might have in, in ignoring it down the road. Yeah, I think it's a space we need to keep watching too, because there have been some proposed rule changes to the SEC's whistleblower program that that could materially impact the shape of it. I mean, they they would do some things which I think are are great, like they try to improve efficiencies in the claims review process and try to clarify some of the anti-retaliation provisions that were in Dodd-Frank. They also would grant the staff greater discretion in setting awards, uh, both up or down. And I think that that's the piece that people are a little uneasy about because they're not sure it would what it would mean. I think whistleblower advocates and certainly firms that represent whistleblowers regularly say, well, we think this is likely to result in smaller awards and, and it could depress the success of the, of the whistleblower program. The vote on those proposed rule changes sort of keeps getting punted. In fact, just this week, they punted again. And I think now we have a new date at the end of the year, a space to watch for sure. Shifting gears into what will be kind of our, our final topic for today from the newsletter, there were details about the PCAOB's inspection report format update, for which the PCAOB issued a guide to, quote, reading inspection reports on June 1st. In fact, George, as you referenced earlier in this recording, we covered in depth during one of our earliest episodes in which we discussed market structure matters with law professor J.W. Verrett and at the time, but now former SEC Commissioner Rob Jackson. Their opinions confirmed that the PCAOB's efforts towards transparency as the standard in regulatory reporting that other industries and regulators might follow. Commissioner Jackson brought up the Form AP disclosures in discussing how increased transparency can help the market. So, for example, um, the PCAOB some time ago um, put out a new rule, the uh, AP disclosures, which require detail on audit partners and their performance. And I understand that that's been the subject of some controversy, but I'm a guy who would love to see more transparency in the area because, to me, transparency helps markets do their work. To the degree that good auto partners are known as such and to the degree less good auto partners are known as such, that helps the market suss out exactly uh, what kind of value they're getting uh, when they look at an audited financial statement from a particular firm or partner. And I think that's, in the long run, that'll lead to more competition in the space. Further, we talked all things PCAOB with Robert Peake of the PCAOB and Jovi Didai, a practicing attorney at Dwayne Morris, a few weeks back. When discussing inspection report issues in June 2020 for the six largest accounting firms, Robert Peake told us that the reports have been modernized and include some new information. By reading those reports, you can learn a lot about what the inspection team found when reviewing the audits of that particular issuer. The reports are written in plain English, so they are more understandable and they limit terms of art. Secondly, there are a number of new charts and graphs that make the information more digestible and accessible. And the report includes a trend of inspection data for the most recent three years. Third, and in my opinion, most importantly, you've added a new section with even greater information that has been revealed about the inspection findings and the deficiencies uncovered. We are also classifying those deficiencies. We have them in a number of categories where there have been a material error such that a restatement has occurred or where there have been other deficiencies where a restatement has not occurred. George, I know that's a lot on the background of a relatively limited release topic from the PCAOB, but I wanted to give our listeners some context from previous episodes on the issue. 
What takeaways do you see, George, from the PCOB's guide to reading the new inspection reports? I think their new format is much more readable. I mean, they really focused more, as you said, on using plain English and a lot less jargon. They also did a really neat thing that's part of any good business report. They now include an executive summary. Using the charts and tables also makes it a lot easier to glean information from the reports. And I strongly recommend that everybody read your auditor's inspection report and probably read a couple of others for auditors who are of similar size or audit in your industry to kind of see where things are. It's going to give you an idea of where the inspectors focus and where auditors have had problems. So you can make sure that your information that you provide to the auditors and that your closing process, and more importantly, your internal controls over financial reporting in those areas are all I's dotted and T's crossed kind of complete. The inspection reports themselves are a lot simpler to read. And it's interesting because they've broken their findings into three categories. They actually talk about findings that include an accounting violation. So if someone didn't follow GAAP and the auditors didn't see that in an appropriate way, those are highlighted. They also highlight audits with multiple deficiencies and audits with a single deficiency. That makes getting the information and getting a feel for how the auditor performed a lot easier. And if I'm an audit committee member, that's something I'm really thoughtful about. If I see an audit firm and they have a consistent problem in a particular area, say fair value estimation and auditing fair value estimates, and and I'm an acquisitive company where fair value is a big deal, um, I'm going to be extra careful about that because the last thing I want to do is have a problem there. The other part that you mentioned, though, I, I think is really interesting where they're including deficiencies that historically they had never said anything about because they didn't have an impact on the report. They, they, they wouldn't be indicative of a material misstatement in the financial statements, but now we can see those. I think that sheds an interesting amount of light into kind of the attention to detail or due care that auditors bring to the process. Things that you might see here would be things like failure to lock up the work papers on time, failure to document discussion uh, with audit committee members about specific issues like taxes or independence. So they're going to be things that aren't necessarily a big deal. But if you find enough small problems, that can be indicative of issues and quality control. Um, One of the things that they still are doing in inspection reports is naming the clients whose audits had deficiencies. And, And that's obviously a very sensitive thing to do, but I think it would be helpful uh, obviously, firms should be communicating that to their audit committees when the firm knows there's a material deficiency in their audit. They should talk about that with the audit committee. If that's not happening, nobody's going to know about it. So I, I kind of wish you could know the name. I'm, part of that is just my own curiosity, of course. But I think it's a good step forward. Mm-hmm. I also hope that this is the first incremental step in a series of steps about the inspection process. Well, George, not only your you know previous nice comments about our podcast generally on this episode, but I think your continued agreement with a lot of our guests about transparency on, on audit inspection issues <laughs> really brings to, to light a lot of what our, our guests are, are looking at. 
We've covered a lot of ground today. We've covered quite a few topics that are in the Q3 SECI newsletter, uh, including some carryovers from our last conversation, like the impact of COVID-19 and SEC regulatory relief. We've also touched on Chris's favorite topic, disclosures, and, and talked a little bit about the PCAOB. But here's the million-dollar question, George. If we're thinking ahead to the SECI quarterly update that we'll see in December, what should we be watching for? What do you think is going to find its way into the last quarterly update for the year? That is a really fun question. To put the crystal ball in front of me and put on my my look into the future hat, I think we'll hopefully see more SK modernization. We haven't really talked about it, but last week the SEC finalized a rule to modernize disclosures for the description of the business, legal proceedings, and risk factors. So I think we'll see a fair amount of discussion about that, and we'll be blogging about those quite a bit. I'm hoping that before the end of the year, they finish their modernization process for MDNA. The proposed rule they issued to modernize the MDNA requirements, to put an objective in the actual SK guidance, to formalize in SK the FR72 guidance about critical accounting estimates, to get rid of a couple of things that I don't think are meaningful disclosure, and also eliminate the selected financial data and selected quarterly data disclosures. I really hope we see that before the end of the year. I bet we'll see a little bit of progress on other proxy issues. I think we'll see more to bring kind of exempt offering processes into the same place, harmonization of those. The statistical disclosures for bank holding companies is another proposal that's been out there for a while. And then lastly, I think we will continue to see the disclosure thoughts about the impact of COVID-19 continue to evolve. You can't make this a one-size-fits-all kind of thing. I think for some companies, the impact of this period is going to be long-lasting, and we need to address that. For others, it may not be as long-lasting. Helping people understand management's perspective about that, I think, will continue to be a big theme. I would agree with all of those, George, and we're going to have to have you back. We're, we're going to test you and mm-hmm. see how many of those, how many of those you got right. <laughs> all right. Well, you know, I, I'll, I'll be like baseball. If I can bat three hundred, I'll figure I'm doing. <laughs> That's right. I'd put money down on all of those, though. Those are hopefully low hanging fruit. I'll ask you another predicting the future question, but your crystal ball is probably a little bit less hazy on this one. You know, why don't you tell us about some of the upcoming SEC Institute programming that we've got for the fall and and into the winter? Thanks for asking about that. Yes, we have got some really exciting things in process right now. You know, just as everybody has been impacted by the pandemic, what we love to do has basically been taken away from us. We can't have people in a meeting room for live programs. So we're actually going to continue. We're doing our mid and small size company conference later this month. That's the one that's usually held in Las Vegas. We're going to do that via webcast and we're going to make it as interactive as possible. Uh, We're also going to do our annual conferences at the end of the year the same way, but we're building new programs and the new programs are designed to be delivered on an interactive platform. We've built in things like polling questions. We're using breakout groups. And the other thing we're doing is breaking things down into small pieces. So for example, we have historically done a two full day basic SEC reporting workshop. 
What we've actually done with that program, since we can't be all together in the same room, and asking someone to sit in front of their computer for two full days is a big ask, we've broken it up into four three-hour segments. Those segments are going to be limited to probably 20 to 25 people. Then I did that that model, that process with a accounting workshop uh, last month, and it was pretty neat because we had a lot of conversation back and forth, um, particularly when we did breakout rooms and got people into smaller groups. So I'm pretty excited about that. So we've got all those fun things coming up, along with our usual quota of one-hour briefings. And you got to remember that the SEC Institute is about accountants and lawyers. So we're actually offering our basic SEC reporting workshop for lawyers next month and just trying to be there when people need us. So thanks for asking about that. Yeah, it, It's an exciting lineup. And I, I think you did a wonderful job summarizing some of the programs you have coming up. I, I'm going to swoop in here and do the light lift, which is if you want to know more about the SECI Institute or learn more about the programs that George mentioned, please go online to pli.edu slash programs slash SECI to learn more. Thanks for joining us on this episode of the Insecurities Podcast. And a special thanks to our repeat guest, George Wilson. As always, we want to hear from you regarding your thoughts, comments, and topics for discussions on future episodes of Insecurities. Please use the hashtag InsecuritiesPod on Twitter or LinkedIn to join the conversation. You can find me at CPA, And I'm at Enforce underscore Update. Please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Be well, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, Insecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of Insecurities, Daniel Pinitz, as well as hosts Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. For more information about PLI's SEC Institute, or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu membership and sign up for a privileged membership. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship. Please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. PLI, Troutman Pepper, and RSM do not make any representations or warranties, express or implied, regarding the contents of this podcast. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission from PLI.